0: Welcome to Normal People. I'm James Treacle here in Austin, Texas.
1: I'm Hans Jaeger out here in the Indianapolis area. And I'm Ben Grimes, also in Austin, Texas.
0: So, uh, we, uh, last week we discussed the two-party system. We discussed some potential solutions for resolving that party, uh, two-party duopoly, as it were, and, uh. This week, we're going to be going into uh, an even more radical policy uh, that is universal basic income. Uh, that was the signature policy that was championed by Andrew Yang, uh, particularly this uh Uh, democratic primary cycle, but it's a much older idea. Um, There have been permutations of this, uh, not only in American politics, but in the Western world in particular for a few hundred years.
2: Right. And, And one of your big major first points of it that at least we have in pretty accurately recorded history, 1795. So it's not like this idea is brand new. Right.
0: Well, and uh, even prior to that, you did have Thomas Paine arguing for a form of basic income in the states, uh, and his. Uh in his piece, uh, Agrarian Justice, he was making an argument that was essentially Georgist, if anybody knows who Henry George is, uh, a uh, non-Marxist socialist (laughs) thinker. Uh, The idea of having the land enclosure be compensated for. In other words, the earth used to be free and belong to everybody, at least in theory, and then as private interests and governments alike began to capture land, it was no longer the property of every human being so a form of basic income from this perspective would be basically reparations for land enclosure. Like, oh, we're sorry that we took away your free access to be able to just wander into this field and pick our berries, but we're going to give you compensation in the form of money or what have you for that land enclosure. So that was the idea of agrarian justice and we see in modern forms of universal basic income uh, proposals, in particular, Andrew Yang's you have this idea of a uh of data having value now, in other words the data that is captured by amazon google apple at all uh that represents uh value that is it's greater than oil and that uh is free uh as far as uh, the consumer is concerned, we're, we're, we're just giving it away, uh, but really does have immense value and we should be paid for. That's the argument. And so a, uh, a universal basic income is basically a dividend from your data. It's a way of compensating you for what you are freely giving to Facebook or Twitter or Google or any of these other software companies, any app that you use that's using your data uh, essentially as a form of payment. They recognize already that it does have value because that's how you're able to use their service um, It's because they are getting something out of it and you in return are getting to use their application. So. Well, I think
1: that something that especially later we'll probably touch on is how adaptable a universal basic income is in the face of crises like right now, like what's happening with this global pandemic. Um, there was some debate back during the earlier days of the primary cycle about things like federal job guarantees versus a universal basic income. And I think this particular moment in time should make it very clear that a federal job guarantee does have certain limitations. And... Um, This is definitely one of them, whereas a universal basic income, you can increase the amount of money you're giving to the people. You already have a mechanism to deliver that money to the people, and you don't have to scramble after the fact to do something like this twelve hundred dollar stimulus that as of this recording,
2: nobody knows when it's coming down the pipeline. Well, and I mean, we also see this as not only as a mechanism that can help sustain our subsidized the upcoming the upcoming economy, this also can be another mechanism, at least in my view, that we can start replacing some of these just purely archaic current social safety nets we have. I mean, we we've talked about I think we touched on this some last week as well. At this point, if you actually need to let's say there isn't a pandemic happening. Let's just say it's a normal, normal everyday situation and you find yourself needing a bit of extra help. What it takes to truly jump through all of those hoops and get yourself onto something like welfare or food stamps or any of those other things, any other means-tested programs, is absolutely insane. You'll starve to death a lot of the time, maybe not starve to death, but you will be in a much, much worse situation by the time you get that assistance than you would have if, say, a very standard program existed, something like this, something like universal basic income. So I have particularly
1: strong opinions about means testing. I uh, used to work as a letter carrier and I was out on the street delivering welfare checks to people a lot, you know, like your, uh, your government checks, things that you get from the state and you see the conditions these people live in and the hoops they're made to jump through. And it is honestly insane. It's incredibly cruel what we're doing to people and means testing really kind of creates this threshold where you're sort of trapped. You can't make more than a certain margin, because if you do, then you lose like a good third of your income, which is all based on these social safety net programs. And so there's kind of no way out. It incentivizes you not to um, become more successful, and it punishes you for any kind of improvement. It's, it's this trap. And I think... That's something that certain people, especially in politics now, use to justify dismantling these programs, that uh, you have a lot of thinkers out there, a lot of politicians out there uh, who are saying, hey, the social safety net, you know, like all these people, um, they, they've got these uh, kind of racist caricatures of like welfare queens, and it's this myth. It's this, this cruel painting that, that they've put together to categorize all of these people who are actually suffering under a system that they had a hand in building. I think one of the things that bothers me the most about objecting to universal basic income on the grounds that it's some kind of Trojan horse or some kind of way to sneak in dismantling the social safety net is that our social safety net, functionally does not work. If you go to somebody who's actually living on SSI, if you go to somebody who's actually living on Snap, they're suffering, they're struggling to get by. There is a boot on their neck and they are just trapped in this hell of constant paperwork with no way out it's it's strangling them. And that is... It's wrong. The system has already been rat-fucked by the people who wanted to dismantle it, who didn't want to pay that money, who didn't want to take care of the poor, and I think we can acknowledge the need for some kind of safety net for some kind of threshold that people can't fall beneath, while still being honest about the fact that, hey, you know what? The bad guys already won here. They already got what they wanted. They already crushed these programs into this unrecognizable form where it's almost impossible to use them. And we've got to do something about that. We can't just circle the wagons. We can't just pretend nothing is wrong. We have to actually stand up for the poor people who are struggling now
2: In Build them something that works. So I tend to agree with you on a lot of points there. I mean, I definitely can say that from, from my fairly limited experience on these kinds of things, I've really only, I've essentially only ever had to try and rely on any sort of uh, social safety net program once in my life. And I'm, I'm very lucky for having, having been able to manage without anything like that. However, the one time that I was applying... By the time I even got through the process, I was already then employed again and had already started receiving paychecks again and was denied at that point, not based on the fact that I currently had a job and had income again, I was denied on the fact that my old job had decided to pay out vacation pay to me. So therefore, well, you got 20 hours of vacation pay, that's fine, that's all you need to survive for the next couple of months, and it's just, it's an insane thought that, You're telling me that simply because I was laid off in a position where they shut down my entire division at this company I used to work for, I get laid off for that. And now all of a sudden, well, sorry, it's your fault that you don't have a job anymore. That's that's an absolute insane idea to me. There's nothing about that that makes sense. And again, I was lucky enough to move on and find myself in a better position. But there are so many other people where that isn't what happens to them. Say their job is automated away. What, what at that point, what are you supposed to do? If you were working in a factory where you used to work on an assembly line and your position is now automated away. There is no next job for you to find. There is not another. You are not going back into your field. You say, "But Hans, they just need to learn to code. Right, right. Well, (laughs) honestly, I would recommend everyone learn to code. If you want to save yourself in the upcoming economy, it's probably your best bet. But that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Um, But uh, to, to the point, though, is just simply that as we start to see these fields completely disappear there has got to be some way to help support people where if you do have to suddenly pivot that they actually have that ability to do so in most places if i say wanted to go back to school right now i don't remember the exact numbers but the average time frame of actually finishing a degree in this country while working full-time is like seven or eight years at this point and i There's no way that that financially makes sense to most people. Most people don't have that kind of time. And it's because you're stuck working a job that you don't like because either your field is automated now or you need to make rent. You just have to take care of your kids. And it just it continues to put the same people behind.
1: Well, and I think that's a good point there, too, about uh, leaving a job behind. Career transitions. Uh, The job market can be rough. It's hard to find something and it's hard to make the time to actually do a real job search while you're full-time, you know, uh, while you're a full-time employee somewhere. And so... Already, that's a tough mountain to climb, and then there's the fact that if you just quit, if you just have a genuinely grade-A shitty boss, if, if things are abusive and you walk, you may not be eligible for unemployment at all, because you quit, you weren't fired, so, oh, no benefits for you. We need to be empowering people to leave that kind of abusive situation. We need to be empowering people to kind of let go of of these horrible working conditions and strike out on their own to find something better. If that's something we believe in, we've got to give them the tools to do it. And right now, most people don't. You're sort of stuck. If you got a job, hey, you're lucky you got a job and you've just got to put up with it because what other choice do you have?
0: So... What is fascinating to me about universal basic income and the conversations around it is that it is an intersection of ideology and economic policy from a pragmatic point of view, and uh, it is something that really reveals a lot of our base assumptions about human nature. Uh, what do we think that people will do if they are not coerced effectively by the fear of poverty into having to work? Um, and I would uh, actually suggest for anybody who believes that a universal basic income would take away people's incentive to work that um, uh, look at anybody that you know who came from means you know, it doesn't have to be a whole lot of means. Let's just say enough means that, oh, you know, their parents helped pay for their college or they had a savings account at some point. That's more means than a lot of Americans have. It's uh, it's enough that there is a floor. There's an economic floor that they can't fall through because either their parents or their savings account is there to save them. They have some kind of, uh, you know, actual cushion against poverty. And now... Uh, All the people that I know who have been like that, uh, they work just as hard as everybody else. I actually haven't met somebody who has just that basic level of safety from poverty that has become some kind of lazy person who isn't pursuing a career and self-actualizing and trying to uh, advance their means. I mean, everybody wants to be richer. Number one, you know, there is this social significance that we place on wealth. So at the very least, people don't want to live in, you know, close to destitution. Let's say that you gave everybody $12,000 a year. Well, I'm sorry, have you tried living on $12,000 a year? It may prevent you from being in absolute poverty, but you are not that much better. Now, That leaves more than enough incentive for you to continue to work and advance your personal goals and try to build wealth like. You know, maybe it'll just give you the confidence to pursue doing that and doing that on the straight and narrow. If you have no floor beneath you, if it's just a bottomless pit, think about what this does to you psychologically and the kinds of things that you would consider doing to get money that you would never consider if you had the assurance that you could never be absolutely destitute. People, when they're desperate, do terrible things. And it seems to me that in the name of trying to make sure that people are sufficiently motivated, which is really just an assumption about everybody else, because nobody thinks of themselves, if I had $12,000 a year, I wouldn't work. We only think that about other people. But because of this assumption that we've made, uh, we are now robbing not only ourselves, but everybody
2: else of this kind of security. Well. And I think that that brings a particularly interesting point. So there's there's an article from The New Yorker that I definitely think if anyone has a chance to read, the, artic- the article was written during the middle of Finland's experiment with UBI, uh, so it doesn't quite know the outcome, but it does talk a bit about what's happening during that. Uh, one of the big things, there is a section where Chris Hughes, who was a part of the founding of Facebook, is talking about, he's talking about basically... He is someone who, if he chose to, he could have easily told that story of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make yourself a great American man and all of those things. He could tell that kind of story, but he completely goes, that's not fair at all. He was a middle, middle-class kid who happened to want to shine because he, through some good academics, got into a nicer high school, and that he didn't feel like he actually shone there, but he had to try and shine through doing schoolwork and working harder and all of that, which eventually led Harvard, all of those other things. But he talks a lot about the idea that a lot of this is just chance, that he was the guy who happened to be in Harvard at the time when Mark Zuckerberg and the other dorm people were making the beginnings of Facebook. He fully admits he's not technical. He has no real idea, but he was good at talking. And so one of the big things that he brings up is that UBI Now, his beliefs on UBI are a bit different than what we're talking about, that there are still somewhat of, a not necessarily a means test, but there is a cap to how much you can make before you stop receiving it. That cap is a lot higher than what most people would say when they start talking about truly um, means-tested UBI and things like that. But I think one of the most interesting points that he has to say is that essentially kids that uh, come from... Actual wealth and kids that come from an affluent place where their parents have money and things like that, it is their actual, as he puts it, their crucial asset is not actually wealth or money. The crucial asset is actually choice. With that money that they have in hand, they now have the ability to go explore whatever it is that they would like to do because with that kind of choice, they now have to say, you know what? I now have the ability to go start a business if that's what I want to do, because I don't have to worry about suddenly not paying my rent tomorrow. I don't have to worry about not feeding my kids or if I want to go back to college because my current field isn't working for me. Whatever that may be, truly, at least to me, that makes the most sense about UBI. It gives us all certain amounts of, as Ben, I think you said it this way before, economic autonomy, something to that extent. Yeah. Um, and just I, I think
1: for me, that's actually the core of it, that uh, financial liberty is individual liberty, that we've been promised um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and most of us aren't empowered to actually do that. If you're so poor that you can't go out there and live the way that you want to live, are you actually free? Uh, you know, like, wage slavery isn't just a cute term. It's this thing that actually happens where you get caught on this endless treadmill where you can't advance, where you don't have the money to invest invest or advance or grow in any way, and you're just stuck with your wheels in the mud forever, and we've got to end that. I think part of addressing the great inequality in our nation is going to be uh, empowering people to have more individual economic freedom, and every time that conversation comes up... It's always about, like, deregulating for the top. I think it's time to invert that. I think we need to get to a point where we're looking at economic freedom for the little guy. Who cares about the millionaires who have plenty to invest? What happens to that guy who's making $20,000 a year? What happens to that single mom who's got two kids to feed who, you know, like, what about her opportunities? What about her freedom? That matters, too. And we need to build a system that empowers them directly. I think universal basic income is one of
2: the key ways we can do that. So something I'd like to pose to the two of you here, um, an interesting question anyways, is so with something like universal basic income, I kind of know where I fall on it, but I'm curious about about your opinions. Would you say that universal basic income should be what replaces our social safety nets, or do you think it should be what helps supplement our social safety nets?
0: So the argument I would make is that our social safety net can't function uh, the way that it's currently designed without a universal basic income. This is to say that let's say that you have a, uh, an extraordinary need you lost your home, you lost your job, you became disabled, etc. So any of the kinds of things that we try to means test for the the uh, the intention is that you're able to identify just the people who need and only supply money to them. That's the purpose of means testing. But the uh, the problem with it, though, is that it's slow. And it doesn't really allow for the, the vagaries of you know, time and human experience and uh, the, also that the kind of that waiting period, of course, uh, that you inevitably have to go through while the government is processing your paperwork, which could be months. It could be as long as they feel like taking. So a universal basic income is just a guarantee of your basic right to exist. Now, over and above that, if you are, say, providing for a family, right, and you and your partner, maybe you both lose your jobs, and you've got that $2,000, let's say if we go with a $1,000 a month figure, we've got $2,000 a month. Now, that might not be a mo- enough to do more than just feed your kids and you know provide basic things for them, but you're quickly going to need to find more work or something else. Now, let's say that we have a difficult job market and it takes a long time for them to find a job. They don't have that much in the way of savings. I do think that there should be programs out there that assist families in that kind of scenario. There could be child you know, tax credit programs, uh, unemployment programs, uh, whatever you know, kind of potpourri of programs you want to put together. But if you don't have a basic floor, that yawning pit uh, represents an existential threat to people. And I think if you provide just that catch that catches you when you fall, then it's totally reasonable to expect some means tested programs on top of that, that can help you temporarily get out of a situation. And that way you're kind of addressing the concern that like, oh, well, people won't be motivated at work or improve their circumstances. Well, okay. well, then those uh extraordinary programs, let's say those means tested programs will go away when your income increases. But you're not going to be disincentivized from improving your situation. Because you have a basic income, you are not, you don't have the gun of poverty pointing at your head, you have the ability to advance with the confidence that no matter what happens, if you lose your benefits, Uh, you'll come out ahead in the end because you will have the superior income of a job. You won't have to wait to feed your kids until you get your your first paycheck because at least you have the basic income. It allows the social safety net to work as intended.
1: Well, and uh, first I want to put a pin in that about um, being motivated to do a job because I think that's an important philosophical obstacle to this in a lot of people's minds. And that's definitely something I'd like to address. But, oh, very um, much agreed. Getting yeah. into the terminology of the social safety net itself, conceptually, it's a net. It's there to catch you when you fall. It's like life is this trapeze act. And if for whatever reason you fall off the tightrope, that net should be there to catch you. The purpose is to have a socioeconomic floor that you cannot possibly sink below. And right now, Our social safety net does not do that. We have a lot of benefits that people only apply to when they're eligible, and those windows are so tiny that you've got to be in a critical position already. So what happens is you lose your job. uh, Just all of a sudden, you have to apply for unemployment, but you've been living paycheck to paycheck. You don't have months of rent saved up, and rent's due tomorrow. You know who doesn't give a damn how long it's going to take for you to get that unemployment benefit, which, by the way, will probably be months? Your landlord. They're going to kick you out. They might give you one or two months' grace if they're unusually nice, but overwhelmingly, they're just going to boot you because you didn't pay, and you're going to be caught in the gears of this system that's not actually designed to save you. And I see that as wrong. I think that's an evil. I think that as long as we tolerate that, we are allowing people to suffer needlessly in this country. So to build a better safety net, we have to have a floor. And I think. Um, Having those programs, like James said, in addition to a universal basic income is a good idea, but there absolutely has to be some kind of baseline, because as it stands, overwhelmingly, more than half of the population doesn't have, you know, like $500 just in case of a sudden emergency. If your windshield gets busted, you probably can't fix it until one or two paychecks down the line. That's for normal people. Most people are making less than fifty thousand dollars a year. That's that's more like combined income is, is if you're making fifty thousand with a spouse or partner. Uh, like overwhelmingly, a lot of us are in that boat where you're making thirty thousand or less, and when you're in that position, you just don't have the luxury of savings. And you can't count on that net that you're already not eligible for because you make too much to catch you if
2: you fall from that position. And we've gotta fix that. So, I would say I think I might disagree with you all on something just to touch here. Mostly the fact that I would start arguing that perhaps universal basic income should start – we start talking about it actually being a replacement for our current system of social safety nets. Not because there is anything – wrong with needing a social safety net or anything like that. I agree with you both on needing a floor, and I think UBI helps provide that. But I do think that our current system is so outdated and so bogged down in bureaucracy and nonsense that I see, to me, I start seeing a system that completely replaces this, where if you lose your job, you don't need to go down to the to the unemployment office and start going, please give me money because my landlord is knocking on my door. Instead, I see a system more based on, essentially there is a floor that everyone is at. Let's say it's $1,000, whatever that may be. I'm not an economist here, so I don't want to pretend like I have some magical figures that can start backing these kind of things up, but I can say that I would see a system where, As you begin to make more small amounts of that, not the floor itself, essentially, actually, it's kind of the reverse. I'm trying to say something a little backwards here. As you make less than whatever we say, this is what a standard of living should be in the U.S., you start receiving additional amounts of your monthly allotment, whatever that is. So let's say it's $50,000, $50,000 and above. Everyone sees $1,000 a month, no matter what that is. Let's say every $100, every $500, whatever the figure is below that, we start adding another 10 to 20 maybe $50 per month that is now being added as your allotment goes, as the amount that you make goes down. To me, so a graduated uh, negative income tax. Basically, that's kind of the idea that I see where using something like that may actually allow us to truly actually just completely rid ourselves of our current broken social safety net that we have. Maybe it's not a perfect idea, but I think it's I think it's an idea worth exploring anyways. Yeah, and I think that's a, a reasonable conversation to have. There are a lot of ways
1: to approach this. Like I think Right now, the important thing at this moment in time is that the door has been opened to the concept of universal basic income in a way that it kind of wasn't before. It's quickly been elevated from this fringe idea up through the primary cycle into this specific moment in time where now you have proposals from other prominent politicians like Maxine Waters or Bernie Sanders that also include a UBI, and... To an extent, don't get me wrong, like, I do think we want to optimize it, we want to find the best way we can do it, but uh, right now, I kind of care more about us having it than not. Like, I think we need to get into a position where we start to put that apparatus in place, because what we have for now is failing us. It's failing the most destitute amongst us, and we've got to do something yesterday.
0: Right, I agree with that, and I think this is... uh is something that um, as people push for this, since there's now a there's a new kind of political movement that's been generated out of this cycle that is trying to. Uh, you know, reach the goal of universal basic income is to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. This is something that we've seen with a lot of uh, left-leaning policy uh, negotiations, let's put it that way, in which the, the you know, the goal it stands in the way of a kind of, you know, moderate approach, of, of a stepping stone approach to uh, attaining that policy. And I think... Uh, since basically we're talking about a national form of universal universal basic income it doesn't have to be immediately uh, accomplished at the federal level Um, this is one of those things that could potentially be done in some form or another by cities by states that have the means to do it uh, in some form or fashion and it doesn't have to Uh, Be this, you know, a perfect, unconditional, perfect universal program in order to build a base of support as people begin to realize that, uh, number one, the state can actually afford it because the money is just going right back into the economy. Because we have a consumer-based economy and you put money into the hands of consumers and they're going to spend it, uh, that uh, not only can it be afforded, but it's not going to take away people's incentive to work. It's not going to lower their quality of life. It's not going to create, you know, quote unquote, welfare queens. It is instead going to be something that, uh, as people get more and more accustomed to the idea of a supplemental form of income that is universal in some way, it will destigmatize it in a way that the social safety net currently it's impossible to destigmatize because it is so attached to uh, all these negative uh, views of the poor, the way that poor people use that money, uh, the way that people. Are penalized for using that money. Uh, there's a lot of fear and terror that is uh, just yeah, that's wrapped up in our, uh, our our welfare system as it currently exists. Universal basic income has the potential to be the rare, uh, universally positive uh, and and well received kind of government program because it's so anti bureaucratic by design, and we've already seen universal popularity for this. Kind of program in places like Alaska where they have the permanent fund, which is an oil dividend that's paid out yearly to every uh, adult citizen, I believe. It, there might actually be a child credit of this too. I don't recall. Uh, but it is, you know, it's not a full basic income. It's only about, you know, two grand a year. But that makes a significant difference. And there is a permanent fund day that uh, is. Uh, every year when people receive their checks, they go out and they spend it. Uh, And that's good for the economy. Businesses know it's coming and they plan accordingly. They lower their prices and people come into the door and they spend that money. If we knew that there was going to be $1,000 a month in every American's hands... Or in every you know resident of every uh, of a certain state's hands, uh, think about what that would do for that that economy and how people would be eager, businesses would be eager, rushing to the front of the line to try to capture that income coming in, and this this will help. Uh, make the economy more resilient, it'll help uh, not only a personal level, but I think on on a you know, if we're talking about growing GDP, if that's one of our major goals is trying to make the country wealthier, universal basic income is something that will help make the economy more dynamic because you have more players in
2: the game. So to kind of further your point there about what it looks like and what kind of effects some sort of UBI can have on local economies, whether that be just county, state-wise, anything like that. So, in the same New Yorker article, there is a portion where they're talking about um, someone who was uh, doing a study on a small village in Kenya where they had been essentially they'd been given a UBI. It was a pilot program uh, called Give Directly. If you all, if anyone out there wants to look into that, uh, it's essentially Silicon Valley fund a lot of people there, uh, and they are. Giving money directly to a small village in Kenya. And essentially what they saw was like within a very small amount of time, this village went from what they called, uh, let me find the word for it, a uh, open defecation model is the official term for that. Essentially shitting in holes. To actually having electricity in the village, having electricity in people's individual homes, actually paving roads, people starting new businesses. And one of the big things that they point out in this article is that... The thing that you hear fairly consistent, not in this entire article, but the section of the article is that one of the things that you hear consistently is a fear of misuse of UBI, that essentially drug addicts and fiends and junkies, they'll all just take their money and go spend it on whatever their particular vice is. But what they're finding here is that quite the opposite starts to happen. There is some abuse of the money, but it's far, far smaller than people would have you think. And that far more often what they're seeing is, somewhat anecdotally, but people starting their own small businesses, someone deciding to go buy a small bike and start a taxi service in the village now, someone buying some cows and chickens and deciding to start farming. And all of a sudden, we're seeing this massive boom inside of this small village where they went from third world literally dirt poor, to all of a sudden, they're starting to come into the modern world now. There are real vehicles and a real economy starting to function here, all based on An incredibly small amount of UBI here, to be fair, because, again, it's a much smaller scale. We're talking about a much poorer place than America. But still, nonetheless, this has been a massive boon for these people. And right now, the plan is that it's going to continue until 2028. To me, it seems like it's going to be one of our truly first long-term studies of what UBI can do. But here within, at least when this article was written in 2018, a few years into the program, it's been a massive boom for them. Well, I think this really touches on that point I wanted to get back to, to
1: kind of pull the pin out of that uh, from earlier. I think there is this ideological opposition to universal basic income, and it's really based on this fear that people won't be somehow motivated to work. We're weirdly obsessed with what the poor do with their money in this country. It's wild how we will go out of our way to police, like, some single mother trying to shop for her kids, and, like, is she buying the right stuff? Is it okay that she has that junk food? And, you know, we, we just rigidly police what they're allowed to do, but we don't really give a shit what that guy with 12 yachts does. Like, his money is his money, and it's his, his problem. He earned it, right? That, that, that's the thinking. So, I think there is this fear that if we give everybody money, are they gonna use it to do the right things? What if everybody's just gonna slack off? And I think to, to be a little bit less, um, reductive here, because I do, I do take that seriously. I think that is, uh, kind of the uglier side of it, that there is this, uh, That's that's kind of the naked id of this fear. Um, But on the other end of it, the more measured response is a well, you know, like we have a lot of jobs that people don't want to do, jobs like sanitation, jobs like food services that are less pleasant, that are less rewarding, that are are things that are you know looked down on a bit. And how do we incentivize people to give us these services that we like and or need um, when? People don't actually have to do those jobs because everybody's more free. And uh, I think on the one hand we should be automating as many of those jobs away as we can. Uh, like I'm old enough that I remember back when the leftist meme was fully automated luxury gay space communism, and it's like everybody's forgotten that now. Like we had a candidate run on, "Hey, automation is coming," and everybody sort of poo-pooed it. Like it's this, "Oh no, no." You see, what really makes you valuable is your labor, and. Yes, you should be compensated for the labor you do. And yes, people are getting screwed over, and that's wrong, and we've got to fix it. But ideally, we need to be moving towards a society where, you know what? Like, we aren't defined by what we can give. We're valuable because we're people. We're valuable because we were born, because we're here, because you're you. That's all you need. And on top of that, what you choose to work on, that's extra. Uh, I think there are ways to incentivize that kind of labor without uh, wringing our hands over whether or not like UBI will destroy the food service industry.
0: Right. It's called higher wages. Right. Uh, that's how you incentivize people to work for you know jobs that are dangerous or jobs that uh, aren't sexy or jobs that are stressful is that you actually compensate them for their labor. Oh, yeah. And that 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 is the real fear is that, oh, no, if we can't coerce people into taking these shitty jobs, who's going to do them? Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Multimillionaire. Uh, you don't want to be a janitor. Oh really? Oh, because it sucks. Well, maybe you should fucking pay them. Honestly, <laughs> this this idea. is the solution, right? So, is that if, for any one of these jobs that has uh, negative stigma attached to it, or that is more stressful? We already know that they're not making enough money. I mean, if you're a teacher, if you're a registered nurse, you're already underpaid. So basic income would at least give us the ability to say no to shitty pay. It gives us the ability to negotiate in a way that we previously didn't. And I mean, if you're a leftist or just somebody who cares about fairness, you should be definitely pro-basic income because this is how you're going to get your fair wages. This is how you're going to get compensation For people who are working these kinds of jobs, you
1: can't negotiate if you don't have bargaining power, and money is power. And that's the other side of the coin, I think, with incentive, because it also empowers you to strike. Right now, one of the only tools that a lot of American workers have to get better working conditions, to get better pay, is the ability to unionize and strike, to push back in some way. And a lot of them aren't empowered to do that. Why don't we see as many strikes now? Uh, And I think part of it is that the way wages are, the way everybody's living paycheck to paycheck, the reality is if you strike and you lose, you're dead. That's it. It's game over. If Amazon just replaces you, you're back in the job market and God knows how long it's going to take you to find another fucking job. So the fact of the matter is a lot of people don't have the luxury And it is a luxury in this crazy upside down world we've created to actually band together and strike. We need to empower people to do that. We need to build this framework where people have the ability to push back and say, hey, you know what, boss? No. And uh, Universal Basic Income does provide some kind of floor where you've got a little bit of a, a war trust, at least. You've got a little bit of fallback where it's like, okay, you know what? I don't need this next paycheck or two. We can pick it. Let's get out there and do this. And it's vital people be allowed to do that if we're going to get anything done.
2: So something to point out, though, something that I think is at least an important thing. You mentioned about how do we go about building this framework and that. We need at least a framework here to actually empower people. Again, back to the concept of having choice, having economic autonomy. One thing that I also think is that in order for us to truly come to a UBI system that does make sense, we must take as many of the facts into account as we can. Because no two, no two societies are exactly alike. Hell, in a place like the U.S., where you go from one state to another and it's like a completely new place. Everyone functions in a little different way. The societies are a little bit different because you go and start looking at basically Finland's experiment. Again, some of this information coming from the BBC here on this one. We'll, uh, we'll go ahead and post this link as well. Um, looking at what Finland ended up doing, they ended up doing essentially a, a randomized trial, 2000, um 2,000 unemployed people were given UBI for two years. Um, At the end of two years, Finland decided not to continue forward with it. And the big question was, was this a success or was this not? Finland basically says, maybe. It depends on what your metric for success is. When talking about, did it actually encourage people who were unemployed to go become employed again? Statistically, no. The same amount of people ended up finding jobs, or at least attempting to find jobs, as did inside of the control group. However, if you measure success by genuine happiness, uh, all of a sudden, there was, as they put it, a statistically significant increase in people's individual happiness as well. So, what makes somewhere like Finland different than somewhere like Kenya? Well, so, so many things make those two places so different. The ideas are pretty similar, but I think another thing that we need to also come to here is that, well, UBI is, I agree with the both of you that this is a great step, I think, for basically everyone. It's definitely not the only answer here, and I don't want to pretend like it is some sort of silver bullet. You know, we're, we're talking about a lot of things and a lot of great possibilities that can come out of UBI, but I think it's also important to maybe maybe temper some of those expectations simply because at this point, we don't truly know the outcome of UBI. We, we have a lot of theories on it. We, we all have theories. Everyone has talked extensively about it. But I think, I think a much larger reform is needed aside from UBI, and we, we can't talk about UBI as, as a silver bullet, essentially.
0: Right. I mean, UBI is essentially an attempt to solve a problem of value. And the fundamental level, Uh, and that, you know, we value labor, maybe we value capital assets, we value uh, all kinds of things, but what we don't actually value in a monetary sense in a way that, you know, recognizes the innate value of that thing is human life. And now that seems counterintuitive, because we talk about human life being precious all the time. But the reality is, and this is also reflected in the drive for things like single payer healthcare, is that when the chips are down, we are on our own, we are really let down by our society, there is a kind of a jungle logic to this. And so really, what UBI is getting at is that fundamental question of what is the purpose of the society? What is it supposed to do for the value of human life? Does it raise that value? Because I would certainly hope so. And there are other proposals that people have put together, things like universal basic services. Oh, well, let's just kind of get rid of money. And you know, honestly, that's more fanciful than UBI uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, you're never going to be able to get rid of markets. They just kind of uh emerge out of people's you know tendency to barter uh and you know my evidence for that is all of human history right and uh <laughs> and and uh so i think UBI, even though it has this this uh, reputation as being a kind of a, you know, it's a Silicon Valley thing because you have all these you know, mega nerds who are into it, these billionaires who have supported it, et cetera, and that it's it's a sort of futuristic, almost utopian kind of idea or something that's highly technical. You know, it's, in other words, it's looked at as being basically a kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a technocratic policy is the way that it's perceived now. It didn't always used to be that way. Obviously, you know, there are forms of UBI that have been around for centuries, but. What UBI really is, though, is an ideological thing. I don't view UBI as being primarily about pragmatism, actually. I think it has pragmatic benefits, and you can make a pragmatic argument for it. But for me, UBI is an attempt to answer an important question, and that is about the meaning, the value, the weight of a human life in a society in which we are all individuals who formed this collective that is you know, governed by something that's supposed to provide not only for the common good, but for the rights of, of individuals. And if we have a right to life, then we should also have the power to live it. We should have the ability to participate fully in our society and without uh, unnecessary suffering. We should eliminate unnecessary suffering as much as we can. And so UBI, I agree, it's not, it's not a silver bullet, and it shouldn't be pursued as if it's going to bring about you know like it this isn't some kind of second coming of jesus kind of policy we don't know yet what all the externalities of introducing this new societal model might be uh as we've seen with any form of social progress there are usually unintended consequences right so there may yet be unintended consequences to ubi and i don't want to you know be arrogant and suggest that there were oh no it's all going to be sunshine and roses from now on because honestly that's, you know, communism promised that everything was going to be fine and dandy. And as we know, when they tried to implement it, all kinds of bad things happened and nobody was ever a- actually able to make it to the communist end goal because there were so many problems that the process of revolution and going through the, you know, the state capitalist, socialist phase, well, they, they, they got stuck there. They were
2: never going to get past it. Well, you, and know? Also, um, you know, that issue about dictators waving a flag of communism. I don't know about you, but that seems kind of like maybe the main Major problem with what happened there, but oh, hey, no, it's no, weird. No, of course, of course, of course but that, that's, that's, that's an externality of utopianism things. and that <laughs> right. uh,
1: yeah, maybe doesn't mean that they believed in the good things. We don't have to pretend right. they right. actually believed in the right. good things. It no, Doesn't mean those course, good things are bad. Yeah, yeah. It just means right. that maybe they were assholes, right? But the right.
0: point is, is that they, there was a utopian ideal that 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 fueled this, that created the opening for this exploitation of sure. the idea. And uh, you know, I'm not going to rule out the possibility that, that that kind of thing could happen with universal basic income or with anything else that's good, at least in principle, right, is that you could have somebody abuse the desire for that thing for their own ends. Absolutely true. And and people have, you know, raised that, that possibility that stink about, you know, any number of things, whether they have skepticism about Andrew Yang's version of the policy, or skepticism about Silicon Valley's interest in the policy, or, or what have you. But, It is one of those things that I think everybody who cares about an equitable society should be able to have a version of an answer that is satisfactory. And, you know, uh, that that question of the weight of human life, the value of one human being and how uh, responsible society should be or should not be for uh, for valuing that human being. uh, Those are fundamental questions and they need they deserve an answer.
1: Yeah, I think they do. Well, and I think that one of the virtues in answering some of these problems uh, with something like UBI is that UBI as a concept is a little bit less married to a specific ideology than some other uh, policies or propositions may be. I think one of the big problems right now, especially in our increasingly polarized uh, environment, is this constant bickering over which dead guy solved politics forever. And I really want us to evolve past that, because we will die if we are all doing that for the rest of eternity. So uh, to kind of get to a point where we are implementing ideas like UBI, it's nice that this is something that you can kind of argue it from all these different angles. You can kind of... um show how it appeals to people from various different groups. And that's something we can use. And I think it's important to use that. To to kind of put my lefty cap on here for a moment, I think there's this modern obsession with theory, and that actually scares the shit out of me. And it largely does because theory is only valuable insofar as we are able to transform it into newer and better theories. The moment theory calcifies, it becomes dogma, and dogma is a death sentence. And we're in a position right now where we have this, um, again, this endless bickering about how we do things, about how we're going to approach things, and our world is rapidly changing. We need responses um, that can adapt with it. We need uh, to find a way to make a more equal society that empowers everybody, and we can't just fixate on what worked 700 years ago, or 300 years ago, or 100 years ago. We need to figure out what works now. And one of the virtues of a democracy is that we have the ability to pull from all these different sources at once and
2: build a better rocket ship. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Again, that was kind of what I was going back to a little while ago that UBI, I think ultimately one of the big things that we need to, uh, that we definitely need to do is we need to pull from all of the experiments that have been done. You know, consistently these experiments will be ran. You see some far more um, far more beneficial and far more successful than others, but we need to figure out why some of these were successful and why these were not and combine all of these ideas into the best possible solution, the best possible UBI for everyone. I think that there are, as you said, Ben, there's a million theories on who should pay and why they should pay and how they should pay or why they shouldn't pay or what detriment it will do. And again, I think ultimately the only real way to get there is to, again, And set aside some of that dogma that you're talking about and maybe actually sit down and go, why don't we just take the best of everything and start trying to work from there, you know?
1: Well, and we need to stop seeing universal appeal as this enemy, because there is this sense that, well, if the bad guys like it and the guys over there are definitely the bad guys, then we can't do it. Right. I think one of the consistent problems in modern politics is that you have bad actors who understand the value and impact of participation and even, dare I say, subversion, and then you have a lot of people who bluntly don't. There's this saying that I really kind of hate, but it just keeps feeling appropriate, that evil always wins because good is stupid, and <laughs> uh, it does kind of feel mm. like we have this Constant problem where like we just can't be sneaky. We can't sneak something in. Like uh, you want to go back to the primary, like ah, well, what if UBI is a Trojan horse? It's like actually, you know what? What if we did just do a Trojan horse? What if we're like, hey guys, we're not going to call it Medicare for all. We're going to call it dumb. Trump care or whatever, ever, you know, like the everyone stroke loves, the sky's ego. Like, who, who, who loves gives loves a their shit what it's called. It. As long as you get those people to pass it. Like, if we have to pacify uh, these people to get our IDs through, hey, so be it. What I care about is that it happens, that it works. You know, like, if Richard Nixon had passed UBI, well, Richard Nixon will still suck, but hey, we would have UBI. Like It's it's one of those things that, uh, at the end of the day, we can't let this ideological purity and our shirts-versus-skins, red-versus-blue infighting stand in the way of policies that will have a real material benefit for people who are dying, actually dying, right now in the streets. For starving children who can't pay for their school lunches. We have to make a difference for them sooner than later, ideally yesterday or the day before. And the fact of the matter is, if we are opposed to advancing a new idea because it's got uh, bipartisan appeal, we really need to sit back and evaluate whether or not we actually care about those kids or those people starving in the streets.
0: Yeah, I would totally agree with every word of that. And I think this is something that uh, we see with a lot of very important policies. We see that with the way that climate change has become politicized uh, and. The issue with these uh, these things, such as Medicare for all, or you know, addressing climate change, or universal basic income, all those kinds of things become uh, attached to the flavor of a particular political stripe. And while I do think that something like UBI is fundamentally ideological, I don't think it's ideological in a way that squares with the uh, the partisan divide as we understand it currently the the left right. Dialectic. I don't think that it squares with that necessarily at all, because we've seen proponents on the right, we've seen proponents on the left. uh, This is something that does transcend those uh, borders. And this is something that's true of something like climate change as well. Conservation used to be the term for environmentalism. Conservation was something that was championed by who? Conservatives. It's not just because their name is similar. It used to be a key plank of conservatism was conserving the land, protecting nature, being a steward of nature. This is even something that evangelical Christian right-wingers used to be really gung-ho about because of this idea of stewardship of God's creation. Well, now that it's been so gamified that like, oh, it's the left that really cares about the environment and the right is supposed to be protecting the interests of oil or whatever. This is, This becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It makes it much harder to accomplish things that if we were to appeal to conservative ideology, we could actually make progress. Now, would it be perfect progress? Are you going to be able to like, I don't know, ban fracking doing that? Probably not. Are you going to be able to accomplish some regulatory change that's desperately needed? Yeah, probably. You could probably make some serious changes if you were to really get into the skin of your enemy, even if you insist on looking at them that way. I mean, for fuck's sake, how did they get into the Death Star? They put on the goddamn Stormtrooper outfits. Sometimes you have to understand who they are, walk and talk like them and get in there and get the shit done because it's an important mission. And basic income is one of those things that I don't want to become too attached to the left. I don't want uh, it to uh, become something that's known as, you know, some kind of socialist policy, because frankly, it's not socialism. And for very key reasons. Uh, And this is so important that I think building a bipartisan movement behind it, uh, just like with climate change, is going to be absolutely essential to the next century.
1: Social safety net bad, UBI good. No, I think it's more of all than that. I think that really right now we're in a position where we do have people suffering and what we're doing isn't working. And a lot of the proposals that are being made by even popular progressive politicians aren't really salving those specific wounds. Hey, look, I'm a big believer in Medicare for all. I really am. I think healthcare is a human right. That's, that's my belief, but you know what? That's not going to pay my bills. That's not going to help little Timmy pay for his school lunches. It's not going to do that. We need it. And yeah, that's great. And it's not a zero sum game. We shouldn't have to choose between them. But the fact of the matter is we need a floor now for these people because there are so many people suffering in poverty and that middle class isn't disappearing. It's been gone for a long time. It's time we woke up and smelled the roses and realized that the reality of the matter is most of us are a paycheck, even a heartbeat, away from the streets. We've got to fix that. And we need real action in that direction. And I see universal basic income as a major step there. I think for me, that should be a core policy of any progressive policy uh, platform going forward.
0: So right now, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we are looking down the barrel of 32 percent unemployment. This is the uh, estimate that the uh, federal government has come up with in recent days. That is 47 million Americans unemployed now. Of the number of those jobs that have been lost due to this pandemic, which is going to be an ongoing problem for months. How many of those jobs are actually going to return 10 million, 20, 30? We don't know. I mean, I think, you know, more than half is optimistic because we're going to see a lot of jobs that were eliminated that suddenly won't seem so essential anymore. We're gonna see a lot of reshuffling towards larger corporations because small businesses will cease to exist. We're going to see uh, local harmed uh, in favor of national. We're going to see a grand reshuffling of the economy. And now more than any time in recent history, We need to be thinking big about what we can do to uh, ensure the future of the economy for every single person. We need to go as big as fucking possible. And UBI is as big as it gets. It's universal. We need these kinds of solutions. Now, UBI is not going to bring jobs back. We're still going to need to figure that out. But it will create resilience And it will distribute that to every single American adult. So in my mind, the battle for UBI has just begun, and it is going to become even more relevant in the months and years to come. And I uh, am going to be using this platform and whatever other platforms I can get to uh, scream from the rooftops about this, because there is a train coming down the tracks, everybody. And right now we're tied to it.
2: From my perspective, I would say that ultimately I think that UBI is is a great idea and I I like the I like that it is in the national conversation right now that people are suddenly very interested in it and that we've been seeing this steady interest rise. I do however think that with all of the grand benefits that it could provide, I also think that We need to give some very serious thought, though, to not only what UBI looks like, but how do we come up with a much better reform uh, that includes UBI in a system that actually works for everyone. I think it can be, I think it can absolutely be done, but I also think right now that it's It's very likely that if a poorly implemented UBI shows up today, we might see it falter very quickly thereafter. By all means, I understand where the two of you are coming from, just getting it in, getting it started, so that way that we can create this floor today. I I absolutely understand the want and the drive to do that. But I'm also more concerned about what that long-term future of UBI looks like if we started that today and it doesn't have just the massive, amazing benefits that everyone wants it to have does that floor suddenly fall out just a few years later? And then what happens at that point? How much harder is it to get it going again? Because everyone now points just like they did to the, um, to the I think I said that right. Spenheimland. Um, yes. Oh, the English <laughs> Um No, that's a different country Hans. Right. right. <laughs> but so in the same way that people were telling Nixon and pointing to the Spenheimland uh, attempt at this, and all of a sudden, UBI disappeared and instead we had means-tested social safety nets. That, that's my major concern at the moment. Is how do we get to a place where UBI does truly make sense for everyone? And it's a system that people can be happy with and that we can use that as a springboard to see even larger reforms in our social safety net.
0: Yeah. Well, I think this is it's worth noting that uh, when you have somebody like Andrew Yang proposing UBI, uh, he's typically miscast as being a single issue, single policy candidate. Right. And that's not true at all. Sure, uh, he sure. had you know hundreds of policies that he was proposing, and you know I, I honestly think that some of them were better thought out than others. Right. That being said, his signature policies all fit together, and that is this you know UBI, a form of Medicare for all. He was proposing a public option, and and right. you know using the market to get rid of private insurance over time, as opposed to trying to you know just. Make it totally illegal instantly. Right, right. Uh, and then the, uh, the third pillar of that, which is just as essential as UBI, and this is a conversation that we could have at a future date, uh, is this idea of getting rid of GDP as the measurement of progress in society. Right. Right. And I think that's going to be essential is because yeah. one thing that we've seen in every basic income experiment, to my knowledge, is an increase in net happiness for participants yeah. and and uh, psychological security. And that's something that um, if we begin to measure for the right things, let's say that, oh, the stock market doesn't immediately take like a huge bounce back because of UBI. Well, if we're looking at it from the perspective of GDP, from the perspective of the stock market, this could be an argument against it. Oh, well, you know, obviously things aren't, you know, dramatically increasing and we're not going back to normal. We want normalcy again. We want those, you know, those good numbers that we saw. But if we change the numbers that we're looking for, and we're measuring health and happiness and a uh, feeling of security and a, a decrease in crime, an increase in education and life satisfaction, a decrease in obesity, an increase in general fitness. Those kinds of things that those are things that we see with basic income experiments. And it's been repeated enough that I think we can reliably say that that is almost certainly going to be a benefit of a national UBI. Then I think that will have a much better chance chance of actually sticking around. Of course, it's not a guarantee. This would be a huge leap just trying to do this at all. But that's something that we should be considering doing, uh, regardless of whether we actually implement uh, UBI, is getting rid of the methods and measurements that got us to this point that made us so fragile to begin with. And getting rid of a uh, purely labor-based theory of value is one important pillar
2: of that, but it's not the only one. Sure. And to be fair, well, I definitely, uh, you definitely have some excellent points on basically changing our measurement, changing the race here, not just changing where the finish line is. Um, To me, that is a whole nother rabbit hole. That is an entire episode to go down. (laughs) But for the time being, at least when it comes to where we are in UBI, again, I want to see careful thought out implementations of it, but I absolutely want to see implementation as soon as we can get it moving. I just want to ultimately see a fully formed plan of it, you know? Yeah. And I
1: think what we definitely do need is uh, something on the table for the moment. It's important not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good, but we do need to build something that works. And um, that may take some bracketing. It may take some experimentation. So uh, trying something Honestly, uh, the fact that these other countries are performing economic experiments and we're not is kind of depressing when we're supposed to be this breadbasket of innovation and ideas that we tell ourselves we're the richest, most powerful nation in the world. In actuality, we're scared to try things that other countries are willing to give a go, even just temporarily to see how it fits. Where's the innovation? Where's the entrepreneurial spirit on the part of the country itself? It's a genuine problem.
0: Yeah. And uh, Japan is actually starting a basic income experiment this year. Uh, so yet again, another country is uh, uh, trying this out. Sure. And uh, we we've seen experiments stateside, uh, Stockton, California. is the most recent one. Right. Um, that Opened was as well yeah, fairly small, but you know still valid experiments and with good results. so this is this is something that I think we're going to be revisited, and uh, I'm hoping
2: that we'll see. Uh, support for it rise well and hopefully when some of these other experiments come in uh the three of us can sit down and revisit the topic again and hopefully hopefully we're going to have amazingly new (laughs) outlooks on it and go yes it's definitely working it's definitely going to happen now i I hope i hope in the future we get to sit down and have that conversation quite frankly i do
0: yeah you know i think we will Uh, so hans you want to take us out this is hans and ben and this is james signing off for normal people